Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. How's everyone doing tonight? All right. Thank you for coming. Um, there's a chair here if someone wants it. There's a chair. <laughs> there's room here next to me. We, we have room to squeeze in. My, na- my name is Matt Kressel. I'm the co-host of KGB Fantastic Fiction here with Ellen Datlow. We've been doing this for um, a long time. The, the series itself has been going since the late 90s. I've been doing it since 2008. Ellen's been doing it since, what, 2000-something? Um, yeah, so it's, it's been going on for a long time. It's always free. All we ask is that you buy a drink from the bar. There's never a cover charge, so just buy a drink, hard or soft. And also, Word Bookstore is here tonight in the back. Where are they? Where's Word? Oh, there he is. He's waving. Um, he's on his phone. But we have, uh, the author's book. we have the author's books for sale tonight. So uh, after the readings, you can go ahead and buy copies of the books, bring them up to the office to get them signed. Tonight we have Victor Laval and Damien Angelica Walters. Yeah. I'm pretty excited about having both of them tonight. And uh, before we get to our first reader, who will be uh, Damien, uh, next month, we have uh, June fifteenth, Mark Laidlaw and Daniel Brown. Yeah. July twentieth, David Levine and Helen Marshall. August seventeenth, Leanna Renee Heber and our favorite guest TBA. <laughs> September twenty-first, Laird Barron and Alyssa Wong. October nineteenth, Jack Ketchum and Caitlin R. Kiernan. November 16th, John Langan and yours truly will be reading here. December 21st, Livia Llewellyn and Sarah Pinsker. Right? So we got a nice, nice year lined up for everyone. Um, so yeah, so I hope you'll join us for that. Uh, our first reader is, is Damien Angelica Walters. Uh, Damien is the author of Paper Tigers, which Word Bookstore has copies of in the back. Uh, It's recently published in Sing Me Your Scars. Her short fiction has been nominated twice for a Bram Stoker Award, reprinted in the year's best dark fantasy and horror, and the year's best weird fiction, and published in numerous anthologies and magazines. She lives in Maryland with her husband and two rescued pit bulls. Here's Damien Angelica Walter. Hopefully, um, can you guys hear me now? 
right, I was going to read from Paper Tigers. However, it stops in a very uh, awkward place. So I'm going to read a short story that was just published in Black Static. It's called Deep Within the Marrow, Hidden in My Smile. <laughs> I wear you in my bones. No one else can see you, but I know you're there. I feel the weight of you within the shape of me like a tumor, a disease. If I look too long in the mirror, I'm afraid I'll see you staring back. Sometimes late at night, when the house is quiet, I whisper your name, but you never answer. My mom talked the whole way to your house, which was weird because she never liked talking when she was driving, and when I tried to turn on the radio, she nudged my hand away. I stared out the window, watching houses and trees blur by, and tuned her out. I'd already heard everything she was saying. Alyssa can't wait to meet you. You're so lucky because her birthday is only a month after yours, almost like twins. Tom is excited for you to see the house. Our parents had been dating for over a year, and they already had a wedding date set. I don't know why they waited so long for us to meet, but I guess it made sense at the time. I didn't want a sister or a stepfather, didn't want to move from the only house I'd ever lived in, didn't want to leave behind the gouge in the kitchen door frame which I'd made with a field hockey stick, or the marks on the wall in the kitchen measuring my changing height, or the spare bedroom that was my dad's old office that still smelled of his aftershave even after three years. Your mom was dead too. Something my mom told me a thousand times, and she met your dad in a support group for grieving spouses. I guess they weren't grieving that much. I knew better than to say that to my mom though. We're here, honey, my mom said as she pulled into a driveway. The brick house had dark green shutters and a big front yard, and gauging by the trees towering over the roof, an even bigger backyard. It was more than twice the size of our townhouse, but I made a face. At least it was big enough so we wouldn't have to share a bedroom. That would have been awful. And I wouldn't have to change schools either. My mom asked if I wanted to switch to the private school you went to, but I said no. I didn't care that I'd have to wake up really early to catch the bus. I told her she was making me leave everything, and I wasn't going to leave my friends too. After that, she stopped asking. Your dad met us at the door, and that wasn't a big deal because we'd met before. You were in the living room, slouched on one end of an uncomfortable-looking sofa. We said hello and smiled, but your gaze said, invader. You were a lot smaller than me, and your cheeks were still chubby, like a little kid's. You looked 10, not 13. But your eyes were dark and serious, and you stared so long and hard that I cleared my throat and shuffled my feet. Your dad said, why don't you show Courtney the rest of the house while Grace and I work on some wedding stuff? I followed you around the first floor while you pointed out the rooms in a low, flat voice. The staircase off the front foyer was a wide curve leading to the second floor. I thought it would be fun to slide down the banister, but when I asked you if you'd ever done it, you said, of course not. All the furniture in the living room looked formal and little used. The dining room was all dark wood and heavy curtains, and the study held leather chairs, a desk with clawed feet, and lots of bookcases. You didn't say the rooms were off limits, but they were all museum silence and sharp edges. Kind of like you, honestly. The kitchen was big, but there were no pictures or school notes tacked on the refrigerator, no crumbs on the counter, or dishes in the sink. 
The breakfast nook was the first room that Luke lived in. There was an open book face down on a placemat and a cup with traces of orange juice. The family room had a huge television and a wraparound sofa with throws and pillows. We use this one mostly, you said, pointing to a narrow back staircase off the kitchen. The carpet swallowed up the sounds of our feet as we ascended. Your dad's bathroom was almost the size of my room at home. And the bedroom was big enough to have a sofa, coffee table, and another television, nearly as big as the one downstairs. Really? You pushed open the door to an empty room across the hallway. This is yours, you said, sneering as you spoke the words. The room was big with soft carpet and blue walls. The windows looked out into the backyard, which was huge. And there was a hot tub off the deck and a pool with an enclosure so it could be used all year long. Maybe living here wouldn't be so bad after all. Your bathroom's there, you said, nodding toward another door. Where's your room? You pointed at the end of the hallway. I caught a glimpse of bookcases and pale gray walls through the half-open door, and I thought you'd show me the whole room, but you didn't. Just stared at me the way you did downstairs, like you could see through inside me. My arms broke out in goosebumps, because it was weird. I have a soccer ball in the car, I said, rubbing my arms. Want to kick it around? You shook your head. I don't play sports. Do you swim? Another shake of your head. The pool was my mom's. I traced a floorboard with the tip of my shoe. Can anyone else use it? I didn't say they couldn't. I didn't know what to say to that, so we stood there beside the empty room. I kept my face turned away so I wouldn't have to see your eyes until I wanted to scream to break the quiet. We can go back downstairs, you finally said. In the car on the way home, my mom said, what did you think? It's big and it's way too quiet. Not the house kiddo, but Alyssa. She's quiet too, I said, and weird, I didn't say. A few weeks after the wedding, after my mom and I moved in, I took a soccer ball into the backyard. You were in your room reading, which was pretty much all you did. My mom kept telling me to ask you to do stuff, but you weren't interested in anything I was, so most of the time if she asked, I lied and told her I'd already asked you. I was kicking the ball around the yard when your dad came out with a bag of recycling. On his way back, the ball traveled in his path, and I called out, sorry! He kicked it back, and I sent it back without a thought, the way I used to do with my dad. I held my breath, thinking he'd get mad. But he didn't. He grinned and said, oh, now you're on. He grabbed two lawn chairs, setting them on their sides for makeshift nets, and the two of us ran back and forth across the lawn, kicking the ball and laughing. Not sure how long we played, but it was a lot longer than I expected. I won, but it was close. He was pretty good. After he went back inside, I saw you in your bedroom window, half hidden by the curtain. I started to wave, but you stepped back out of sight. I waited to see if you'd peek out again, but you didn't. I guess it made you jealous, but it wasn't my fault that your dad liked soccer. You could have come out to play too. No one was stopping you. Even after my dad died, when it was just the two of us, my mom was big on family dinners. She said it was too easy to get into a routine of not eating together. I'd tell her about school, she'd tell me about work. Boring. We'd, get, we'd talk about everything and anything. We did the same thing at your house too, and your dad joined in. My mom tried to get you to talk, but you answered with, fine, when she asked how school was, and shrugged and forked another bite into your mouth when she asked what you did in class. 
That lasted for about a month, and then one night my mom called everyone to the table, and from the top of the stairs you called down, I'm not hungry. My mom stood there with her mouth open, and your dad said it wasn't really a big deal. I could tell from my mom's face that it was to her. But I want us to eat as a family, she said. You can't force her to eat if she isn't hungry, your dad said. She doesn't have to eat if she doesn't want to, but I'd like her to sit with us at least. She shouldn't hide away in her room all the time. She's not hiding, she's probably reading. We never really made a big deal about dinner before. My mom said, I understand that, but things are different now. Grace, honey, she's still getting used to all the changes. Every kid deals with things at their own pace. Don't worry about it tonight, okay? I knew my mom didn't want to let it go, but she did. I was surprised. The next night, you did the same thing, and although my mom exchanged a nervous glance with me, she held her tongue. Later, I saw you in the kitchen making a sandwich, and when I said, I thought you weren't hungry, you smiled, your lips pressed together, and said, I wasn't. My mom's trying, I said. You don't have to be mean to her. Your eyes were laser beams pouring into mine. I didn't ask her to try. I didn't ask her to come here at all. I flopped on the sectional in the family room, grabbed the remote, and started flipping through channels before I saw you curled up in the corner of the sofa with a book in your hand. You glared at me from atop the cover. I wanted to leave the room, but I didn't want you to know. So I stayed put. I was sitting here reading, you said. Okay, sorry. I turned off the television, crossed my arms over my chest, and swallowed. Want to play checkers or uno or something? You let out a long sigh and from behind your book said, why don't you go play soccer with my dad? I didn't, but I did go swim in the pool. I didn't understand what your problem was. We were supposed to be a family, right? After a while, my mom and your dad came outside and got in the pool with me. When we finished, you weren't in the family room anymore. Your bedroom door was shut. I made a face as I walked by and paused because I heard your voice. It sounded like you were talking to someone, except I knew you were the only one in your room. Your footsteps moved close to the door and I took off for my room, heart pounding. You talking to yourself was nothing to be scared of, but I was. My mom opened my bedroom door and stuck her head in. Courtney, are you gonna get up sometime this morning? I groaned and smacked the snooze button on my blaring alarm clock, felt my eyelids fluttering shut again. I pushed back the covers scrubbed the sleep from my eyes, and struggled to a sitting position. The soles of my feet and my sheets were flecked with dirt, and there were smudged footprints tracking across the floor leading in from the door. I sat with my mouth hanging open. I'd showered the night before. My towel discarded in a pile on the floor was proof, not that I needed any. And I didn't sleepwalk. I never had. My hands started to shake. It had to be you. I knew it. But why would you even do something like that? I left you alone, and I never went in your room. I heard footsteps in the hall and caught a blur of motion too short to be my mom. She called out again for me to get a move on, and I did, wiping my feet clean on the towel, wiping away the footprints on the floor, too. In the kitchen, I saw my soccer ball in the middle of the yard. I never left it outside, ever. When you came in the room a few minutes later, you had that tight-lipped, weird smile. I wanted to shove your cereal bowl off the counter. I also wanted to run out of the room. Behind my mom's back, I mouthed the word, why? 
You kept on smiling. I wanted to tell my mom what you did, but I didn't. I should have. I guess I was afraid she wouldn't believe me, and although I didn't want to admit it, I was afraid of you. Photographs sat on the side tables in the fireplace mantle in the formal living room. There were a couple of pictures of you as a baby and one with you, your dad, and your mom at the beach. The three of you were squinting in the sun, but I could tell you looked a lot like her. You had the same hair color and the same round face. She looked normal though, not creepy. A wedding picture hung over the fireplace. Our parents were smiling so big it made my cheeks hurt. I stood beside my mom, you beside your dad. All four of us had our arms linked, the photographer's idea. You were smiling too, but it was more like the weird smile from the kitchen than a real one. I'd never noticed before, but once I did, I couldn't not notice. I heard a snort behind me, and you were there, book tucked under your arm, lips crooked into a sneer. Oh, happy family, you said. At least some of us are trying. She'll never be my mom, you said. She isn't trying to be. You'll never be my family. I said, why do you hate me so much? Who said I hated you? You put dirt in my bed. You smirked and shrugged one shoulder. Did I? Stay out of my room, I said, squaring my shoulders and fighting to make my voice strong. It's my house, you said. <clears throat> it's your dad's house, not yours, I said. You leaned close enough so I could smell your peanut butter breath. You and your mother should leave, you said, and left the room without a look back. I didn't go back upstairs for a long time, and when I did, I ran past your room, even though your door was closed. I padded downstairs to get a drink and paused on the bottom step when I heard our parents talking. Tom, I really think you should talk to her. Try to bring her out of her shell. She's a quiet kid. She's always been that way. I know, but sometimes I feel like there are only three people who live in this house, not four, and that isn't right. Have you considered that she might need someone to talk to? Someone professional? She doesn't need that grace. She needs time, that's all. She'll come around. I know she will. But she's fine. Look, I know you're concerned, but I know my kid. It takes her a long time to get used to change. So my mom knew something wasn't right, too, but I was still too afraid to talk to her. I knew she wasn't going to pack up and leave. She sold her house. We had no place to go. I woke in a room still in shadows. I blinked in the darkness, saw movement beside my bed, and there you were. You froze in place. What are you doing? I said. You held one finger to your lips. I must have fallen back to sleep because the next thing I knew it was morning. I saw you coming out of the bathroom and I stepped out into the hallway, my hands curled into fists to keep them from shaking. I told you to stay out of my room, I said. I wasn't in your room, you said. Yes, you were. I saw you last night. Maybe you were dreaming, you said as you walked away. Stay out or I'm telling your dad, I called out, my voice kind of whiny. But what else was I supposed to say? And I knew it wasn't a dream. My soccer ball was exactly where I left it. My sheets were clean. Nothing was missing, at least not that I could tell. My legs were sore the way they were after I went swimming. My bathing suit draped over the back of my desk chair felt damp too. Okay, that was weird. 
I ran my fingers over the straps with the inside of my cheek pinched between my, between my teeth. I hadn't been in the pool in days. That night I locked my bedroom door and propped my desk chair beneath the doorknob. I breathed a sigh of relief to find it still locked and barred in the morning. Every night my mom set the table for four, but you joined us only half the time. I guess my mom had given up trying to convince your dad because she never seemed surprised either way. When you weren't there, she made a plate for you, wrapped it in plastic, left it in the fridge. But the plates always went untouched and she eventually stopped. I liked it better when you weren't there. When you were, I tried to pretend that everything was fine, but I swear you watched me the whole time. I didn't understand how your dad couldn't see that there was something wrong with you. I guess parents never want to think that way about their kids. One night your dad had to work late, and when my mom and I sat down at the table, I toyed with my, toyed with my fork and took a deep breath. Mom, something weird has been, are those stuffed shells? You said from behind me, I love stuffed shells. Yes, my mom said, and her face lit up Christmas tree bright. She got up to get another plate and you slid in your seat, your eyes all innocent and sweet. Your smile might have looked real, but I knew it wasn't. My mom bought it, though, and I knew then that I couldn't say anything. You wouldn't let me. I guess I forgot to lock my bedroom door because when I woke up with you in my room again, halfway between my bed and the door, I sat up. The sheets pulled around my waist. Get out of my room, I said. You came closer. Do you think they'd like me if I was more like you, you said? What? You're the ash girl turned princess and I'm the ugly one who cut off her toes and still can't fit the shoes, you said. What are you even talking about? You laughed, but the sound wasn't happy, and it made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Once you were gone, I locked my door, but I couldn't fall back to sleep. Not for a long time. Me, your dad, and my mom were watching a movie and eating popcorn in the family room. Your dad grabbed the remote, hit pause, and said, we should go camping this weekend. My mom laughed. Where did that come from? I have no idea, but doesn't it sound like a good idea? Sure, I said, I haven't been camping in a long time. We can go to Cunningham Falls State Park, sleep in tents, roast marshmallows, hike the trails, your dad said. Not sure if any of my old gear is any good, but we can buy new stuff if we need to. I think that sounds awesome, I said. I meant it too. Want me to tell Alyssa? I didn't want to, not really, but it seemed like the kind of thing I should say. Your dad blinked and my mom shook her head a little, not in a yes or no, but in the way people did when they were surprised. Then your dad said, I will. When he came back downstairs, his face was kind of sad. She doesn't want to go. I tipped my chin down to hide my disappointment. Well, to pretend to anyway. Of course you didn't want to. You weren't happy and you didn't want us to be happy either. But it's okay, he said with a smile. She's old enough to stay home by herself, so we'll go without her. In the months that followed, the three of us went camping a few times, and then to the beach, too. Sometimes when I forgot to lock my bedroom door, I woke up in the morning tired, my hair smelling of chlorine or my feet dirty, but I never said anything. You were probably pissed off because we were out having fun while you stayed home. But if I said something, then you'd know your tricks are working. The picture of you, your mom, and your dad at the beach disappeared from the living room. I found broken glass and part of the frame in the kitchen trash can. 
I waited for your dad to notice, but he never did. I woke with you atop me. Your body fitted against mine limb to limb. I was too startled to say anything, to shout, and then you pressed down impossibly heavy. I inhaled your exhalation, tasted your breath, felt the fine hairs on your skin brush against mine, felt your heat in the delicate cleft between my thighs, absorbed the dampness of your sweat through my pores. As I drew in a breath to scream, you said, mine. And as I choked on the word, everything went hazy. I felt you fall inside me, through my skin and into my bones. I sat up, running my hands over my arms and legs, breathing hard, my body strangely heavy, though unchanged on the outside. I could still taste you in my mouth, meat and anticipation and need, and my thighs quivered with an unresolved ache. A dream. It had to be a dream. You were in your room, still asleep. All I had to do was creep down the hall and check, but I didn't. I couldn't make myself get out of bed. I stared at the ceiling until sunlight crept in my room, and when I finally got out of bed, I fell to my knees. I hobbled across the room, my back bent, every step quicksand slow. My mouth was dry, my hands trembling. It was Sunday, and I didn't have to worry about school, so I paced in my room until I grew accustomed to the new weight in my spine, refusing to think about what had happened, refusing to think it was anything other than a dream, and I must have slept wrong. Maybe I tossed and turned too much. When I heard our parents go downstairs, I slipped down the hallway and stood outside your closed door. I lifted my hand to knock, but let it drop instead. I didn't know what I was more afraid of, seeing you there or not seeing you at all. The smell of bacon wafted up the stairs and I waited by your door, leaning as close as I dared and hearing nothing, but you never came out. And at breakfast, there were only three place settings on the table. I sat with my shoulders hunched and didn't say anything to our parents about my dream or the plates or you. I tucked my soccer ball under my arm and went out into the backyard. My kicks were awkward and half the time my foot missed the ball as though I'd never played soccer before. Your dad came outside and when I waved, I saw him frowning. You're a little off your game today, he said. I know, I don't feel so hot. It was a lie. Well, maybe you should come inside, he said, and rest instead of playing. I'll come in in a little while, I said. But I stayed outside, kicking and re-kicking the ball, getting angrier and angrier with each fumbling arc of my foot, each miss. There were only three of us in the wedding photo over the fireplace. Our arms were still linked, but in the space where you should have been, there was only the background. I touched the picture with one trembling finger, half expecting it to disintegrate or burst into flame or change back to right. I heard my mom's footfalls in the foyer and called her in. What, honey, she said. Look at this. She smiled. That was such a wonderful day. Right, but don't you see something wrong with the picture? No. Should I? She stepped close, dropping her chin down and peering up through her lashes. Don't we look? off-center to you? Well, now that you mention it, yes, we do. Funny, I never noticed that before. Her brow creased, and for a moment, I felt for sure she knew exactly what was wrong. Your name danced across my lips, but I held my breath. Then my mom smiled. I'll have to take it and get it reframed at some point. Come on, want to help me get dinner ready? I made your favorite, stuffed shells. I froze, unable to blink or breathe or make my mouth move. I finally said, sure, 
and cast a glance over my shoulder as I followed her out of the room. Without thinking, I pulled four dinner plates from the cabinet, but before my mom could see, I pulled one back. Your dad rapped on the door frame with his knuckles. Want to watch a movie with your mom and I? No, that's okay. I have to finish this, I said, lifting my notebook, hoping he wouldn't look too closely at the blank page. You sure? Yeah, I said. You okay, kiddo? You seem distracted lately. I'm fine, I said, putting on a smile. Just busy with school. You know, he said, you can tell me if something's bothering you. You can talk to me about anything at all. I know. Thank you. I swallowed hard against the lump in my throat. When he stepped out of view, I crept across the room and peered outside. He paused by your door and cocked his head with his hands in his pockets, but after a moment, he headed for the stairs. I sat on my bed with my arms wrapped around myself and whispered your name. You didn't answer. I waited until our parents went out to dinner and took the front stairs to the second floor. My mouth was dry and a cold snake slithered from between my shoulder blades down to my tailbone, but I opened your bedroom without knocking. The bookcases and pale gray walls were still there, but the shelves were empty, and the only thing hanging from the bar in the closet was a square of cedar. I looked beneath the bed, underneath the pillows, behind the curtains, in every drawer of the desk, but there was no indication you'd ever been here at all. I stood with my back against the wall, breathing hard. This isn't possible. It, it's, it's not. I dragged the desk chair over to the closet and checked the shelf, and there in the back corner I found a folded photograph. You, your dad, and your mom at the beach. The picture that was missing from the living room. Here then, proof that you were real. I stood on the chair for a long time, turning the picture over and over in my hand. So I check my feet every morning for unexplained dirt and flex my muscles for unexpected stiffness. I tell myself I'm okay. I want to be okay. But I still can't hit the soccer ball well. And when I try to swim, my arms and legs can't find the proper rhythm. I'm mostly afraid, of, afraid about the changes I don't know about yet. And what if I never know until it's too late? Maybe you're changing me a little bit more every day and I'll wake up one morning and feel your shape beneath my clothing, taste your words on my tongue and hear your voice in my ears. You wouldn't do that to me, would you? I don't know how you did it or why or what you thought would happen. Maybe you figured you could take my place and somehow got stuck. Maybe you wanted to disappear and be forgotten. Maybe you were angry and wanted to scare me. Well, that part worked, so you can come back now, okay? You, you can come out now. Our parents remember that they've forgotten something. Now and then, your dad stands in the doorway of your bedroom, hands in his pockets, his eyes serious, shoulders slumped. My mom never got the wedding portrait reframed, and sometimes she stands in front of it, her forehead creased, her mouth pursed. I can almost understand her forgetting. She wasn't used to two kids around, and you were always in your room, but your own dad? I think you made them forget you. I wish you would have made me forget you, too. At night, I take out the photograph I have hidden under my mattress and tell you I'm going to show it to our parents and tell them what you did. I'll make them remember, and then you won't be able to hide inside me anymore. But I'm scared they won't believe me. I'm scared you're never going to leave. And I know you know it too. I feel it. 
in my bones. And that's in Black Static, the current issue? Yes. Okay, Black Static's one of... 52? I don't remember what number they're up to. That's It's actually one of the better, I think it's one of the best horror magazines. It's out of England, and it's a sister magazine, Interzone. Anyway, we're going to take a 10-minute break. In the meantime, have a drink, buy some books, have the right to sign them, and we'll be back. Hello there. Hi. Hey. We're going to start the second half of our, our reading series tonight. And by the way, if you want to get on our mailing list, just go to uh, Fantastic Fiction at KGB and there's a newsletter. You can, you can sign up for the mailing list and all it is is for this, so we don't you know, spam you or bug you with other events, just this one. So anyway, Victor Laval is the author of three novels, a collection of stories and two novellas. His most recent novella, The Ballad of Black Tom, was recently published by Tour and has, is all around here. <laughs> um, he has won the Shirley Jackson Award and an American Book Award, among other awards, for his novel, Big Machine. He also wrote, I don't have this here, but he wrote this excellent novel called The Devil in Silver, which is about an insane asylum in uh, New York, and it's fantastic. <laughs> so I highly recommend that. He teaches at Columbia University. Please welcome Victor Laval. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for coming out. It's a uh, pleasure and an honor to read for this series again and to read with Damien tonight. Uh, and uh, if we could also, um, so Tor published uh, Ballad of Black Tom, and Ellen is the one who edited it and made it much better. So how about a round of applause? You made it for got me to change the whole end, the, the, the last little thing. But, she said, but, but, don't but, you think this? And I said, yeah, you're right. Listen, you did it. Actually, you read my mind. All I said is, isn't this a little abrupt? That's all I said. Uh. I did not say <laughs> But that's a good editor. That's enough. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, so uh, I'm di I think I'm just, I'm just going to read uh, the first chapter of uh, The Ballad of Black Tom. And uh, again, I... Any background to that? About it? Uh, oh, so... Uh, so does it, uh, how about a, a show of hands? Anybody here who has who grew up on or who loves H.P. Lovecraft, me included. So you may or may not like this book. That's that's, that's most of what I can say for setup. All right. So, but the as far as the beginning, it's the first chapter, so you shouldn't need any setup. People who move to New York always make the same mistake. They can't see the place. This is true of Manhattan, but even the outer boroughs too be it Flushing Meadows in Queens or Red Hook in Brooklyn. They come looking for magic, whether evil or good, and nothing will convince them it isn't here. This wasn't all bad, though. Some New Yorkers had learned how to make a living from this error in thinking. Charles Thomas Tester, for one. The morning of most importance began with a trip from Charles's apartment in Harlem. He'd been hired to make a delivery to a house out in Queens. He shared the crib in Harlem with his ailing father, Otis, a man who'd been dying ever since his wife of 21 years expired. They'd had one child, Charles Thomas, and even though he was 20 and exactly the age for independence, he played the role of dutiful son. Charles worked to support his dying dad. 
he hustled to provide food and shelter and a little extra to lay on a number from time to time. God knows he didn't make any more than that. A little after 8 a.m., he left the apartment in his gray flannel suit. The slacks were cuffed but scuffed and the sleeves conspicuously short. Fine fabric but frayed. This gave Charles a certain look, like a gentleman without a gentleman's bank account. He picked the brown leather brogues with nicked toes, then the seal brown trooper hat instead of the fedora. The trooper hat's brim showed its age and wear, and this was good for his hustle too. Last, he took the guitar case, essential to complete the look. He left the guitar itself at home with his bedridden father. Inside, he carried only a yellow book, not much larger than a pack of cards. As Charles Thomas Tester left the apartment on West 144th Street, he heard his father plucking at the strings in the back bedroom. The old man could spend half a day playing that instrument and singing along to the radio at his bedside. Charles expected to be back home before midday, his guitar case empty and his wallet full. Who's that writing, his father sang, voice hoarse, but the more lovely for it. I said, who's that writing? Before leaving, Charles sang back the last line of the chorus, John the Revelator. He was embarrassed by his voice, not tuneful at all, at least when compared with his dad's. In the apartment, Charles Thomas Tester went by Charles, but on the street, everyone knew him as Tommy. Tommy Tester always carrying a guitar case. This wasn't because he aspired to be a musician. In fact, he could barely remember a handful of songs, and his singing voice might be described kindly as wobbly. His father, who'd made a living as a bricklayer, and his mother, who'd spent her life working as a domestic, had loved music. Dad played guitar, and mother could really stroll on a piano. It was only natural that Tommy Tester ended up drawn to performing, the only tragedy being that he lacked talent. He thought of himself as an entertainer. There were others who would have called him a scammer, a swindler, a con, but he never thought of himself this way. No good charlatan ever did. In the clothes he'd picked, he sure looked the part of the dazzling down-and-out musician. He was a man who drew notice, and he enjoyed it. He walked to the train station as if he were on his way to play a rent party alongside Willie the Lion Smith. And Tommy had played with Willie's band once. After a single song, Willie threw Tommy out. And yet Tommy toted that guitar case like the businessmen, proudly carrying their briefcases off to work now. The streets of Harlem had gone haywire in 1924, with blacks arriving from the South and the West Indies. A crowded part of the city found itself with more folks to accommodate. Tommy Tester enjoyed all this just fine. Walking through Harlem first thing in the morning was like being a single drop of blood inside an enormous body that was waking up. Brick and mortar elevated train tracks and miles of underground pipe, this city lived. Day and night, it thrived. Tommy took up more, than, more room than most because of the guitar case. At the 143rd Street entrance, he had to lift the case over his head while climbing the stairs to the elevated track. The little yellow book inside thumped but didn't weigh much. He rode all the way down to 57th Street and there transferred for the Roosevelt Avenue Corona line of the BMT. It was his second time going out to Queens, the first being when he'd taken the special job that would be completed today. The farther Tommy Tester rode into Queens, the more conspicuous he became. Far fewer Negroes lived in Flushing than in Harlem. Tommy bumped his hat slightly lower on his head. The conductor entered the car twice 
and both times he stopped to make conversation with Tommy. Once to ask if he was a musician, knocking the guitar case as if it were his own, and the second time to ask if Tommy had missed his stop. The other passengers feigned disinterest, even as Tommy saw them all listening for his replies. Tommy kept the answer simple, yes sir, I play guitar, and no sir, got a couple more stops still. Becoming unremarkable, invisible, compliant, these were useful tricks for a black man in an all-white neighborhood, survival techniques. At the last stop, Main Street, Tommy Tester got off with the, all the others, Irish and German immigrants mostly, and made his way down the, to street level, a long walk from here. The whole way, Tommy marveled at the broad streets and garden apartments. Though the borough had grown modernized, grown modernized greatly since its former days as Dutch and British farmland, to a boy like Tommy, raised in Harlem, all this appeared rustic and bewilderingly open. The open arms of the natural world worried him as much as the white people, both so alien to him. When he passed whites on the street, he kept his gaze down and his shoulders soft. Men from Harlem were known for their strut, a lion's stride, but out here he hid it away. He was surveyed but never stopped. His foot shuffling disguise held up fine. And finally, amid the blocks and blocks of newly built garden apartments, Tommy Tester found his destination. A private home, small and nearly lost in a copse of trees, the rest of the block taken up by a mortuary. The private place grew like a tumor on the house of the dead. Tommy Tester turned up the walkway and didn't even have to knock. Before he'd climbed the three steps, the front door cracked open. A tall, gaunt woman stood in the doorway, half in shadows, Ma'at. That was the name he had for her, the only name she answered to. She'd hired him like this, on this doorstep, through a half-open door. Word had traveled to Harlem that she needed help, and he was the type of man who could acquire what she needed summoned to her door and given a job without being invited in. The same would happen now. He understood, or could guess at least, or at least guess the reason. What would the neighbors say if this woman had Negroes coming freely into her home? Tommy undid the latch of the guitar case and held it open. Ma'at leaned forward so her head peeked out into the daylight. Inside lay the book, no larger than the palm of Tommy's hand. Its front and back covers were sallow yellow. Three words had been etched on both sides. Zig, zag, zig. Tommy didn't know what the words meant, nor did he care to know. He hadn't read, read this book, never even touched it with his bare hands. He'd been hired to transport the little yellow book, and that was all he'd done. He'd been the right man for this task, in part because he knew he shouldn't do any more than that. A good hustler is not curious. A good hustler only wants his pay. Ma'at looked from the book, there in the case, and back to him. She seemed slightly disappointed. You weren't tempted to look inside, she asked. I charge more for that, Tommy said. She didn't find him funny. She sniffled once, that's all. Then she reached into the guitar case and slipped the book out. She moved so quickly, the book hardly had a chance to catch even a single ray of sunlight. But still, as the book was pulled into the darkness of Ma'at's home, a faint trail of smoke appeared in the air. Even glancing contact with daylight had set the book on fire. She slapped at the cover once, snuffing out the spark. Where did you find it, she asked. There's a place in Harlem, Tommy said, his voice hushed.
It's called the Victoria Society. Even the hardest gangsters in Harlem are afraid to go there. It's where people like me trade in books like yours, and worse. Here she stopped. Here he stopped. Mystery lingered in the air like the scent of scorched book. Ma'at actually leaned forward as if he'd landed a hook into her lip, but Tommy said no more. The Victoria Society, she whispered. How much would you charge to take me in? Tommy scanned the old woman's face. How much might she pay? He wondered at the sum, but still he shook his head. I'd feel terrible if you got hurt in there. I'm sorry. Ma'at watched Tommy Tester, calculating how bad a place this Victoria Society could be. After all, a person who trafficked in books like the little yellow one in her hand was hardly the frail kind. Ma'at reached out and tapped the mailbox affixed to the outside wall with one finger. Tommy opened it to find his pay, $200. He counted through the cash right there in front of her, enough for six months' rent, utilities, food, and all. You shouldn't be in this neighborhood when the sun goes down, Ma'at said. She didn't sound concerned for him. I'll be back in Harlem before lunchtime. I wouldn't suggest you visit there day or night. He tipped his cap, snapped the empty guitar case shut, and turned away from Ma'at's door. On his way back to the train, Tommy Tester decided to find his friend Buckeye. Buckeye worked for Madame St. Clair, the numbers queen of Harlem. Tommy should play Ma'at's address tonight. If his number came up, he'd have enough to buy himself a better guitar case, maybe even his own guitar. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any more books left for sale? No? Uh, Are either Damien's or Richter's? Uh, yeah, there's four of Damien's. Come on. Okay, well, come and get Damien's. Go on, come on. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, thank you. You can hang out, and we'll see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.